At RIV, we invite everyone to know and enjoy Jesus as we stumble together in our pursuit to love like Him. This stumbling together is how we live out the truths of the gospel in community each day. As we look to the next generation, we are trusting God to use our Riverview Church family to be a great blessing to our community in Lansing and beyond. We are committed to loving like Jesus as we dream and pray about the future. With our renewed core values, we are looking to take some significant steps over the next two years from increasing our staff with young and diverse leaders, improving our kids and student spaces, planting more churches, and developing a new missional fund for RIV communities to serve our neighborhoods, cities, and towns. These dreams happen as we join together as a church family. So we're asking you three questions. Would you join a RIV community? Where do you plan to be present missionally? And what do you plan on giving financially? Would you pray and consider being a part of this two-year commitment as we entrust our plans to God, pray for lives to be changed, and equip and empower the next generation? Hey, what's going on, Riv? How are you? Good. So we are uh, in week three of a series we're calling Entrust, where we're looking at how God has been faithful to us as a church over the last 45 years and kind of dreaming about uh, what the next, I don't know, 45, maybe even more uh, years might look like. And so if you have your Bible, uh, uh, if you could uh, flip, tap, or swipe your way to 1 Samuel. Now, I know 1 Samuel might not be a book that you're in very, very often, so it's kind of toward the beginning of your Bible up here, but I want to set the context text of what is happening in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 13 um, before we get there. What had happened here is the children of Israel um, had been begging God for a king because everybody else had a king. So like they didn't have a king and they were feeling the peer pressure and everybody else had a king. So they're like, God, would you give us a king? And so God finally gives them a king, a guy by the name of Saul. And what Saul does is one of the first things that many kings often does. He puts together an army. And his army was, was about uh, 3,000 soldiers. And what he did is he kept 2,000 soldiers for himself, and he assigned 1,000 soldiers to fight for his son, Jonathan. And those were the, like the two regiments there. And Saul had some victories, but Jonathan was like killing it. So when he would go out there with his 1,000 soldiers, he had massive victories which started to cause this tension with his dad, Saul. In fact, his dad went on and began to take credit for his son's victories, which tells you a lot about their relationship, which you can read more about that uh, for Samuel if you want when you get home. Um, but at the point that we hit in, in, in 1 Samuel 13, the, the, their war with the Philistines is, is really growing, okay? And so this is where we're at. Uh, 1 Samuel 13, verse 5, it says... Uh, I'm way too many pages off. First um, Samuel 13, verse 5 says this. It says, The Philistines also gathered to fight against Israel. They had 3,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops as numerous as the sand of the seashore. Once you hold that in your mind, it's going to become very important. Um, they went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth Aven, and the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble because the troops were in a difficult situation. 
So they hid in caves, in thickets, among rocks, and in holes and cisterns. And some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan in the land, uh, to the land of Gad and Gilead. And Saul, however, was still at Gilgal, and all his troops were gripped with fear. And so Saul's army, which is 3,000, split up between you know, him and Jonathan, um, they, they get so terrified that it says some of them went AWOL, some of them hid in thickets. Like, think about how panicked you have to be to uh, just go, like, jump into the weeds. You're like, I'm just going to hide here in the weeds. Nobody's going to see me down right here. They hid in cisterns, like like big wells full of water. They did anything they could uh, to not go to war. They went from 3,000 down to 600, right? And not only that, it says in the next couple verses, there were only two swords left in the entire army. One Saul had and one Jonathan had, and everybody else said we're fighting with agricultural implements. Swords, rakes, weed whackers. That's right. That's all, that's all they had. So then jump down to chapter 14, verse 1. It says, that same day, uh, Saul's son, Jonathan, said to the attendant who carried his weapons, come on, let's cross over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. However, he did not tell his father. Now, that verse may not seem very ominous, but listen to what he's saying. He said, let's go over to where the Philistine garrison is on the other side. Think about that as a loaded sentence for a second. It's like someone's running around on the roof, right? <laughs> but think about this idea. He says, let's go to the, on the other side. He's not saying that this is something like, hey, let's run over to the MSU dairy store and get some ice cream, <laughs> right? He's saying, let's go on vacation in Ukraine, right? It's a terrible idea. Two of them, and on the other side, is this my mic? Yeah, yeah really? If you, if you guys want. Oh, yeah, that's definitely my mic. So, all right, let's, let's unclip that and see if that helps. Hey, hey, there you go. So clap for our sound people or the miracle of technology that unplugs that. So, all right, so, so we're now at the stage. Now I got to turn my notes back, right? All right, so they are... Two guys, Jonathan and his attendant, which some, here it'll go back and forth from saying attendant to armor bearer, right? This guy right here, they're going to go up against the entire Philistine army, which is how big? As numerous as the sands on the sea, okay? That's the context here. Now let's look at verse two and three. It says, Saul was staying under the pomegranate tree in Migron on the outskirts of Gibeah. The troops with him numbered about 600, and Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod, was also there. He was the son of Ahitub, the brother of Ichabod, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the Lord's priest at Shiloh, but the troops did not know that Jonathan had left. And so Saul here is camped out under a pomegranate tree. Now, I don't know why that that is the particular thing mentioned, but it feels to me like vacation, Right? Like he's under the pomegranate tree with the drink, with the umbrella, and the whole thing. He's just kind of hanging out there. And he's hanging out with a priest by the name of Ahijah. Now, we don't know much about him, except that we know his family lineage because we just got told about them. And so that's probably important. And if you look up who this guy is, you see that his grandfather, Eli, was awesome. 
awesome man of God, but then it kind of went downhill from there. Um, Eli's sons and trickling down to, um, to this guy, they, had, um, a, they were in the temple of not worshiping God the way that God commanded them to. And, and they were even going so far as to sleep with the women who served in the tent of meeting. These were despicable guys down through this, this family tree and the despicable behavior continued in various forms until we get to Ahijah, who's hanging out under a pomegranate tree and he's wearing an ephod. Right, means nothing to you, does it? Now, what is an ephod? Well, an ephod was like this pimped out vest, like with jewels and encrusted on this thing. And it was supposed to be worn by the high priest when he would go into the holiest place in, in, the, in the temple. And it was later worn by priests when they were performing religious duties. But this guy is wearing it to war, hanging out underneath a pomegranate tree. Now, the reason he was doing that is very, very likely because they began to believe that this vest had some kind of magical powers to be able to communicate with God and ask God yes or no questions, and the vest would tell you the answer, kind of like a magic eight ball. You guys remember magic eight balls? That's how they treated it. They had these two rocks in it, and then they'd roll them kind of like dice to determine if God was saying yes or no. So you can kind of see like Saul hanging out under the pomegranate tree saying, God, should we go to war today? All signs point to no. So we'll just hang out down here, right, with our, our drinks and our little uh, tiny umbrellas. And, and so Jonathan is with them underneath this tree, and Jonathan, like, just can't do it. He's like, I just cannot sit around and, and wait anymore. I got to do something, right? So he looks around, and he's trying to figure out who's going to do something with me. Maybe it's my dad, you know, the only other guy with a sword. Maybe it's this crooked priest, some other guys, and then his eyes settle on his attendant, his armor bearer. Now, this guy, um, don't think of him as just a guy that would carry his stuff for him. They were more like a golf caddy. You ever watch uh, PGA on TV? I, I've started watching that because my son watches it. It's terrible. Uh, watching someone else golf is, uh, me golfing is terrible. Watching someone else golf is even worse. Um, but if you watch golf, what you'll see is these professional golfers, before they make their shot, they t- have a conversation with their caddy. They're like, what do I do? Like, what, what, what club do I use? You know, what's the approach like? What's the wind like? They talk it through together, and then the guy takes the shot. That's sort of what the armor bearer was like here. He would be like a, a military strategist, a consultant that would talk through what has to happen here. But then as soon as that decision is made, they would be all in, just kind of like the caddy. They'd, they'd grab the stuff, and they'd go uh, do the thing. And so Jonathan turns to his armor bearer, and he says, I have an idea. Let's go over there to where there are soldiers as numerous as the sands on the sea. Verse 4, look at this. It says, there were sharp columns of rock on both sides of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine garrison. One was named Bozes, the other Sena, and one stood to the north in front of Michmash and the other to the south in front of Geba. And, And this may seem like unnecessary information, but it's setting the stage for us. Think about this for a second. The Philistine garrison is somewhere over there, right? And in between here and there are these two huge mountains, these big, huge, jagged cliffs, right? That's called a choke point. Like any military strategist would tell you, the wrong place to go is there, 
right? Because on the other side is an entire army that outnumbers the sands of the sea. And presumably these two rocky cliff areas would be covered with people just making sure that no one comes to the choke point. And Jonathan's like, I have an idea. Let's go there. Right? And he says this to his guy. And it said, Jonathan said to the attendant who carried his weapon, come on, let's cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will help us. Nothing can keep the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. This whole thing is a terrible idea. Right? They're going to have the low ground. They're going to be trapped in a valley between these two cliffs with, with an army on the other side. And for me, the most disturbing thing in the whole thing is this phrase. Perhaps the Lord will help us. Perhaps. Let's go over there on a perhaps. He has no certainty, right? It's not like he, he can even say to his attendant, like, I have heard a word from the Lord. Like, I would take a dream, a dream, a vision, God's voice, anything, but he's just moving on a perhaps. And so I thought, maybe I'm just, I, I'm missing the point here. Maybe it's different in the Hebrew, the original language. So I looked it up, and in Hebrew, this is the word ule, and ule means maybe, <laughs> perhaps, or this is the worst, I suppose. Like, I suppose God may help us, Right? Jonathan's like, it's probably the right thing to do. Maybe God will help us, but you know what that means? Maybe not, right? This is a terrible plan. But it's also pretty much how I've felt for like the last five years. <laughs> really since COVID, I don't know about you. I mean, I'm one of those people, I'm a planner. Like I plan five years, 10 years, 20 years. I, got, I know my retirement date, I got everything. Plan everything out. And I just always seem to know. I, I know where I want to go. I know where I think that God wants to take us. We, you know, it just even just with our elder team, we just, we, just, we just know. And yet this last several years, the way I described it to one of my friends is I feel like I'm running through a field and all I can see in front of me is a gate. And I'm like running at the gate as hard as I can. And at the last second, the gate opens and I can see something on the other side and maybe another gate. I can only see like one decision at a time. But here's what I'm learning. Uncertainty is where faith lives. There's that same famous verse in Hebrews that says, now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not yet seen. It's the proof even though I can't see it. I can't see what's over the bend. I can't see what's around the corner. I can't see what's between the valley, between the two big cliffs. I can't see what's on the other side of the other gate. And sometimes when we don't know, we are just paralyzed into inaction. Listen to what Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, said in Ecclesiastes. He says, one who watches the wind will not sow, and the one who looks at the cloud will not reap. Just as you don't know the path of the wind or how bones develop in the womb of a pregnant woman, so also you don't know the work of God who makes everything. I hope Solomon is not bursting your bubble here, but meteorologists don't know what they're talking about. Like, I mean, okay, I know there may be meteorologists here. We used to have meteorologists that went through, and they would tell me, yeah, the best we got is a really good educated guess, right? We, we know generally what's going to happen. We can probably predict the weather, but we have all made plans, haven't we? 
based on the weather forecast and the weather forecast change. I mean, I started riding a motorcycle this last year. Don't email me about it unless you want to say, yay, that's great. If you want, uh, Don't email me about the safety. Um, but I started doing that this year. And there was a day when I got up in the morning and everything was supposed to be sunshiny the whole day. I was so excited. I had meetings on the other side of town. So I rode my bike over there. By the time my meetings ended, torrential downpour, lightning, wind, the whole thing. The meteorologist lied to me in the morning or they didn't know what they were talking about. And that's what this is saying. He says, you don't know where the wind comes from. Not only that, you don't know how a cell divides and divides and divides into crafting a baby in in the womb of a mom. Yeah, we've come a long way in understanding that. But there's a lot of that that's still a mystery. And that's how God works. So many of us, we wait for the perfect timing, the perfect situation, the perfect people, the perfect church before we move. And then the end result is, we never do. Sometimes it's so hard to wrap our head around what God is doing that maybe we just need to move on a perhaps. And I actually think that's where we are as a church. One example I can give is kind of our, kind of our financial picture as a church. And I want to show you something here, just kind of run through our budget over the last three years, just so you guys know where we're at. Back in 2019... Our budget was, and these are round numbers, approximately 3.5 million back in 2019. Now, 2020, obviously, everything goes crazy in the world, but in 2020, our budget goes to 3.3 million. And then in 2021, our budget goes to 3.2 million. And we don't have the full numbers for this year, so I didn't want to try to project that. But I don't know what you think when you see this. I look at this, and I am super encouraged. Do you know why I'm encouraged? That even though it looks like a downward trend, I know that our church congregation is about half the size it was before COVID. And yet our budget has dropped from 3.5 million to 3.2 million. That tells me a couple things. The first thing it tells me is that the people that have stuck around RIV and the people who have joined RIV are all in. They're absolutely all in. And it tells me that there are some people who have really, really given huge toward what we're doing here as a church and have sacrificed a ton. And so what we did is earlier this year, we sat down and we decided to pull together what we call an aspirational budget. And by that is we looked at everything that we would dream of as a church. Like what would we dream that God would do in and through us? We looked at our mission and our, our core values and we tried to build out, like what would we hope that God would do over two years? And then we tried to craft a budget around that just to see what that would look like. And I want to share with you an aspirational budget that we have, what we would hope over the next two years. And I'll put it into the broad categories and these are all annual numbers, okay? So the first one is this, 3 million for staffing and operations. And, and And what we mean by that, by staffing and operations, is basically, any of you guys who own a business, you know what this is like. You got to pay your staff and benefits and all that kind of stuff. And and people insist on things like toilet paper and um, electricity to keep the lights on. And, And just as you guys know, with your own family budgets over the course of the last several years, inflation has been crazy. And so the cost of all that stuff has gone up significantly. But this $3 million includes hiring a bunch of new, young, and diverse leaders, including at least two women in director-level roles. We already hired one of them because we thought it was important to happen, and we're hoping to hire at least another. And so this is an aspirational budget to kind of grow that team and grow our operations. The second thing in our budget is half a million dollars 
for local and global missions and church planting. And one thing you may know about RIV is that we commit 10% of everything that comes in to go back out to church planting. So we start new churches in the Lansing area, in Michigan, all across the Midwest, around the world, primarily in Brazil and East Asia. And we do that out of our budget. But what we want to do is make sure we're doing even more. And so you may do the math in your head and go, oh, wait, 10% would be 300,000. And we're like, exactly. We want to do more. We want to give more. We want to do, do more around the world. And so that's that half millions. And the next thing is 250000 for ministries. And what we mean by that is this is not the keeping the lights on budget. This is not the, uh, the toilet paper and coffee budget. Um, this is our Riv Kids budget, our student ministries budget, our, the stuff we're doing on campus at Michigan State, the things that we're doing with our Riv communities, all the ministry, our care ministries, all of that sort of stuff that's beyond just kind of keeping the lights on our weekends services, things like that, all falls into this category here. Now, the next one I'm actually really excited about, it's $250,000 toward Riv Kids and student ministries renovations. Now, let me tell you what we mean by that. What we want to do is when we built our Holt building and then acquired our Rio Town building and our Westside building, we renovated everything so that everything was like a pallet. And so if you'll notice, if you go around Riv, you'll notice that, that our rooms are relatively generic in, in their design, and they were done that way intentionally so that we could multi-use the space because we love art, and so we want to do new art, like even in our auditoriums. But then in our kids' space, the idea is we thought a bunch of different ministries would use these rooms, but what we found is 95% of the times, it's kids. It's kids using the space. It's student ministries using the space, and they're kind of blah spaces. And so we want to renovate those spaces to really make them super kid-friendly, super student ministry focused. And so we have plans for how to do that across our venues. So right now, our team has just been, at least right now, just crazy painting and putting vinyl on the walls and changing the spaces cosmetically until we can get ready to do more, which we're hoping to be able to do over the course of the next two years. So the next one here is $200,000 for facility upgrades and maintenance. And what I call this is how Noel's soul dies. Um, but every time, I, I, I'm convinced every time you write a check for a new parking lot, um, an angel loses his wings. That's what that category is. But we need parking lots. We need roofs. We just put a roof on um, at the whole venue. And so we got to do all that stuff. That's what we have to do. It's just part of running a business, right? And so the next thing is $200,000 toward our West Side Venue mortgage. Our West Side Venue is the only venue that we have that we have a mortgage on. And we were like, it'd be really great to kind of knock that off. And so we thought, wouldn't it be really cool if just over the course of a couple of years, we could throw a couple hundred thousand dollars extra on it to try to knock that sucker off to get out of debt. And so that's what that one is. And then finally, $100,000 for our missional fund. And what we mean by this is what we want to do is we want to start a fund where our RIV communities can come up with great missional ideas in the community of something that they want to do, and they can apply for a grant, and we would cover the grant so that they could do the cool missional thing in the community. Like I was talking to one person who said, could we do like a vacation Bible school like in our park in our neighborhood? It'd be something cool like that. Can we do something mission of the community and then just apply for a grant and then we would pay for that? So you'll notice that out of this, this all works out to $4.5 million a year. If you look at that budget, we're giving away 600,000 of that is going straight back out is our goal into the community. Now, will we raise $9 million? Perhaps, right? I mean, perhaps the Lord will help us, but nothing 
can keep the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. I love that phrase by Jonathan, because Jonathan's confidence is in God. His confidence is not in what he's going to be able to pull off, the fact that he's a great military leader, he's got you know, his attendant with him. He's not on his brilliant plan, his strategy, which as we know is terrible. You know, his, his whole confidence is in God's character, that God does what God says he's going to do. And sometimes I think we as people and we as individuals and we as a church, sometimes we, we don't like ambiguity in plans. What we want to do is we want to make our plan perfect and then maybe we'll trust God to show up with our perfect plan instead of coming to God who is the perfect God with our imperfect, ambiguous plans. Sometimes we believe more in ourselves than in him. Think about Solomon's two examples he gave us, weather and childbirth. We know a lot about the weather, but there are still freak tornadoes, right? We know a lot about how a child is formed in the womb, but there are still miscarriages. Does that mean we should never go out of our house because there might be a tornado? Does that mean we should never try to have kids because there might be a miscarriage? This, the, we step out in faith all the time. Even in something like weather or having a baby, there's an element of faith. But I love what Jonathan says here. Notice this. Don't forget this. He says, nothing can keep the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Isn't that a good word? I, I know we're asking a lot during this series. Uh, uh, first week of the series, we asked you to consider joining the Rift community, which for some of you is absolutely terrifying. Last week, we asked you to consider living on mission, living in our community in such a way that you can introduce people to Jesus. For some of you, that's terrifying. And this week, we're asking, would you financially give to what Riv is doing over the next two years? And for some of you, that's terrifying. Our question for you is, what would that look like for you? If you've never given anything to Riv before, would you consider maybe starting to give? If you do give to Riv, would you consider even increasing that? a little bit. It's going to take some faith, but that's sort of the point. Nine million dollars sounds like a huge number, but at Riverview, that's less than $200 per person per month. It's less than $45 per week per person, and admittedly, for some of us, that's impossible. But for some of us, we could give so much more than that. So perhaps... All of us will jump in on this. Perhaps we'll all be in. Perhaps not. But that doesn't change the fact that nothing will keep the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few, which is why I'm not worried about this series at all. <laughs> because whatever God ends up doing is what we'll need, and he will end up saving people, whether by many or by few. I, I love Jonathan, look at Jonathan's armor bearer, his response in chapter seven, or verse seven. He says, do what is in your heart, go ahead, I'm completely with you. I don't know about you, I think we all need somebody like that in our lives. People who will say, I'm completely with you, whatever you do. They'll give us counsel, they'll give us advice, but then we give them our terrible plan, and they're like, I'm with you, I'm in right? They're in our corner. Now, it could have been that that was his job, but it all, there's nothing in Jonathan's character that, to me, doesn't show us that he would have taken feedback well. I mean, because he would have taken feedback very well if his armor bearer said, this is a terrible idea, right? Don't use that club. 
I think he probably would have listened. But Jonathan here is ready to move on a perhaps. So look at all this. He says, his armor bearer responded, do what is in your heart, go ahead, I'm completely with you. All right, Jonathan replied, we'll cross over to the men and let them see us. That's the plan. I want you guys to catch this. He had said, we're going to go over there. And the guy's like, I'm with you. What's in your heart? How are you going to do this? He's like, that's a great plan. We're going to let them see us. That's a terrible idea, right? Especially in this choke point. And it gets even worse. Look at verses 9 and 10. It says, if they say, wait until we reach you, then we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come on up, then we'll go up because the Lord has handed them over to us and that will be our sign. So here's the second part of the plan. If they tell us to stay here, we'll stay. If they tell us to come up to them, we'll go up to them. So that part of the plan is not only are we going to let them see us, we're going to do what they tell us to do, right? And if they tell us to come up to where they are, up the rocky cliff where all the guys are probably hanging out shooting arrows down at them, if they tell us to go up the cliff and not stay down here, that'll be a sign from God that, that we're going to win, right? Which again, telling God, this is the sign I want from you is bad. That's a bad sign anyway, right? Because the right plan would be sneak up on them. Maybe wait until night. But they do the opposite, Verse 11, they let themselves be seen by the Philistine garrison. And the Philistine said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes in which they have been hiding. The men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come on up and we'll teach you a lesson. And they said, follow, and they said, follow me, Jonathan told his armor bearer, for the Lord has handed them over to Israel. He's like, I told God that was the sign. If they tell us to come up, we win. They told us to come up, we're going to win, right? The Philistines had to be laughing their butts off. Now, I've never been in a sword fight. I know that's a shocker. Ooh, there's a hair. It's probably a beard hair. There he goes. I've never been in a sword fight. But I would imagine that besides skill and a sword, which, by the way, they only had one of, you need one other thing arms. Now, why do I say that? Because the whole plan here is now they're going to climb up this cliff. Have you ever gone to Grand Ledge and gone rock climbing or climbed on a rock climbing wall? What does your arms feel like afterward? Right? Like complete butter, right? So they're now going to climb up and try to win this battle. It says, Jonathan uh, climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer behind him, Jonathan cut them down and his armor bearers followed and finished them off. So they're climbing up the side of this cliff. He's hacking at them with his sword. They fall down. The armor bearer, I don't know, he doesn't have a sword. I don't know how he finishes them off with like a rake or something behind him, right? And this is how they work their way up. And, and, and it says in the next verse that they beat 20 guys this way. And what's amazing is they beat 20 guys, Right? Not because it was them climbing up the cliff, but because that means that these guys so didn't consider them a threat that they didn't call for backups from the army that was the size of the sands of the sea. They didn't even think that they were going to have any chance against them. And here's the response of all this. Verse 15, terror spread through the Philistine camp and the open fields to all the troops. Even the garrison and the raiding parties were terrified. The earth shook and terror spread from God. When the Philistines heard the sound of battle, 
and they looked over and they saw their men being thrown off the cliff, they must have thought, it's a sneak attack, which would have been a great plan, right? But they see their guys flying off the cliff, they freak out, and then God's like, well, I have to be part of this. So then God starts throwing earthquakes at them, right? And then that's it. And it says, verse 16, it says, when Saul's watchmen in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, they saw the panicking troops scattering in every direction. So from where they're sitting under the pomegranate tree, they see all the Philistines just running away and panicking. And so Saul called, said to the troops of them, call the roll and determine who has left us. Like, who's out there fighting? And they called the roll and saw that Jonathan and his armor bearer were gone. They counted 600 guys and they're like, yeah, we have, 590, uh, we have 598. Like, there's two guys are doing it, all of that. And at that point, Saul finally heads into battle. And I want you to hear this last chunk. It says, when all the Israelite men who had been hiding in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, that's when they joined the battle. All the guys who ran away came back, joined the battle, and joined Saul and Jonathan in the battle. And the Lord saved Israel that day. The Lord saved Israel based on a perhaps Jonathan believed in the unwavering character of God. He believed that nothing was impossible with God. He believed that if God chose to, God would help him. And he stepped out on a perhaps. What does this mean for us? Well, as we look down the next two years, our financial goal of nine million seems absolutely impossible. We're asking to increase our budget to pre-COVID levels because of what we're hoping that God will do through us in the coming years. But we serve the God of the impossible. Will we raise all of it? I don't know. But there is something we can know. Nothing can keep the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. You know what I see in this? An invitation. You see, Jesus has already done all the work. He lived a sinless life. You didn't. I didn't. He went to the cross to take the penalty of our sins so that we won't have to be separated from him eternally. He rose from the dead so that one day we might be resurrected with him too. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father so that we can know that everything earthly that has to be done to save us has already been done. Jesus has already done all the saving. Nothing can keep him from saving. So what he does is he invites us to go along with what he's doing. He invites us to reach the world with the love of his son. Here's what I know. In the Lansing area, there are half a million people roughly that live here. Of the half a million people that live here, the vast majority either self-report as irreligious or they're not connected to any church family in any way. But you want to hear something really cool? Post-COVID in the United States, do you know what generation has actually come back to church more than any other generation by percentage of their population? Not boomers. Boomers didn't come back. Not Gen X, not my age. Millennials. And when I see that, I think we are on the cusp in our country of another revival, and it's going to start the same way it always does with young people. We've seen God do that again and again and again at RIV. We've seen God do that again and again and again down through history. 
It was by God's favor that Riverview go from this little church plant 45 years ago at Michigan State to reaching thousands of people for Jesus in, in four locations around the city. It was by God's design that this happened. It was by his design that we shrank back down to the size we are now. He's going to do what he's going to do with as many or as few as he chooses. Nothing can keep him from saving, whether by many or by few. So I think it's time for us as a church family to step out on a perhaps. Now, I have a little confession to make. I'm going to take a sip of water while you try to decide what the confession is. Oh, it's getting you in it. This isn't the first time I've preached this message. The first time was October 28th. 2006, way over in our kids' chapel, which was our auditorium. And we were dreaming of building this building that we have out here at Holt, out here. And we were trying to raise the money for this, and I was terrified. Like, it just felt like way too big of an ask. I thought, there's just no way that we're going to be able to do this. But look around. If you're at Holt, look at this. If you're at Rio Town, look around. That didn't exist yet. If you're at Westside, look around. Because that was not a RIV building. If you're online, look around your living room. But the, the service didn't exist at that time. And I mentioned something in the, a couple weeks ago in only one of the services. And I forgot in the other, so I don't remember which service I mentioned it in. But this month, something really cool happened. We wrote our last mortgage check on this building. This one is paid off. Isn't that cool? Here's the thing. So we own the Holt building free and clear, the Rio Town building free and clear. We just have a little bit of a mortgage left on the west side one that we want to try to knock off. And, and, and in 2006, that seemed impossible. But in that time, we've planted churches, started venues, thousands of people have come to Christ, and I'm just praying that maybe, perhaps, God would do that again. So on your chair, there's a little card. And I'd like you to take this card home. We'd like you to consider the stuff that's on this card over the course of the next week. There's a bunch of questions on here um, that we've been asking over the last several weeks. Like, would you consider joining a RIV community? We've got hundreds of people that are, uh, uh, or, that are already in RIV communities the second one, it says on here, where can you be present in your community? That was for size purposes to fit that on this little card. Um, that is the question we asked last week of where will you live on mission? We want to know. Do you have an idea as for how you're going to live presently in our community on mission for Jesus? And then we're asking, what would you plan on giving monthly? The reason we're asking this question is we just want to be able to plan our budget over the course of the next two years. And we are hopeful that, that God will raise, we're confident that God will raise exactly what we need to do exactly the mission that he wants us to be on. And so the thing is, what we'd like you to do is to bring this back with you next week. Um, and we're going to collect this so that we can have an idea of how to plan for the next uh, couple of years. And so I truly believe it feels like, in a sense, we're in a valley staring at an army <laughs> with two massive cliffs next to us, when we think about all of our culture and all that is going on, and yet I'm confident, maybe a little bit more than perhaps, <laughs> that God is gonna do something crazy again. I believe Jesus is inviting us to climb. So would you climb with me? Let's pray, and then we'll continue in worship. Heavenly Father, we...
we thank you for uh, this story of Jonathan and, and his armor bearer, and, and we just thank you for that just gutsy move of faith. And we just want a little bit of that, just a little bit of the faith that those guys had. And so we just pray that as we all consider these questions over the course of this week, um, that you would do some work on our hearts and our minds, and that you would bring in exactly what you're going to bring in so that perhaps um, we can reach some more people for Jesus in the coming years. Uh, We pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.